In May of this year, I ended up unconscious in the emergency ward at VGH. Thankfully, my eldest daughter was at home as she called the ambulance for me and her decision saved my life. I remember waking up three hours later not knowing where I was and when the specialist walked in, he told me that I looked really good for someone that was Ill as, as ill as I was. My diagnosis was sepsis, a bacterial infection that once it enters the bloodstream is fatal if it's not treated quickly. For the past 21 years, I have lived with a chronic illness, but it's never occurred to me that anything related to my disease would take me out early. I spent two nights in the hospital and I came away with a sense of peace and just joy knowing that, that I believe in Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior and that God's not finished with me yet. I grew up going to church every week. It was the day that we wore our Sunday best, we polished our shoes, and we never shopped on Sundays. I called myself a Christian because I went to church, but the fact that Christ died on the cross for my sins was lost on me. I remember when I was 17, I got a job at the hospital, and so I stopped going to church altogether. I knew I had to sort out the whole Jesus thing before I died, but I was a teenager, and I knew a lot already, and so I, or so I thought, and so I just walked away from God. I met my husband when I was 17. He was 15 years older than I was, and he influenced most of my decisions for the next 19 years. My childhood dreams of being a nurse morphed in me, into me being a flight attendant and getting to travel around the world. He was a doctor and eventually we married and we lived in a beautiful house. I remember a few years later that I wanted to start having a family and yet I was diagnosed with MS. Multiple sclerosis is a chronic condition of the central nervous system. Essentially the body's attacking itself and it affects cognition, it affects balance, mobility, and it comes with an assortment of other things. In the beginning stages of the disease, no one is aware that you have a problem, but as the disease progresses, it becomes more evident to everyone. I did get to go on and have two beautiful daughters, and on the outside, I lived the beautiful life. But God has a way of catching up with us. 13 years ago, my world came crashing down around me, and I remember finding myself in a bookstore looking for the book that would help me deal with all the stress. Unfortunately, I had to stop flying because the disease had progressed that I couldn't work as a flight attendant. My marriage, unhealthy from the start, made it so that I had to take my two children and move to the safety of my parents' home. My mom had me at Willingdon Church the next Sunday, and I knew that as I sat down in the pew and opened the Bible, that this was the book that I had been searching for. I remember recommitting my life to Jesus, and I, and I did so every Sunday for months. I just wanted to make sure that I was really saved. My journey of faith has been slow but steady. I remember going to ladies' Bible study, and when I was told that the Holy Spirit lived inside of us, and I was suddenly concerned that I should be eating for two, I knew that it was time for me to actually open the Bible and commit to reading through it for myself. There's much hope, true stories, encouragement and life when reading the Bible, and so it makes it really easy to come back to and read again and again. My prayer life has become alive too. What was originally difficult and awkward is now just filled with a sense of hope that God hears our prayers and He answers them. It's not always the answers that I want to hear, but I know that as I draw closer to God, that I hear more of Him in my life. I love where I am in my journey right now. I know that I'm loved, accepted, and I am forgiven, and that my dad's the king. I love that we get to serve an amazing God and watch as He works in and through us for His glory and for our good. I may be unbalanced with each step that I take, but in those very steps there is much hope and joy as I get to live my life in thanksgiving for His sacrifice on the cross for me. Never forget that each breath is a gift from God. We never know how many days we have on earth, so just make sure you get it right with Jesus before you go. Uh, confession time. Uh, I need to get something off my chest. Uh, here it is. I love a good love story.
There it is, right? There it is for you. I've confessed that. Just got to let you know, I love a good love story. I'm a crier, as you've probably witnessed over the years. I like to cry. have no problem crying. Come to our house when there's a good love story with a good ending, and you'll see four people weeping their heads off. That's, that's our house. Love a good love story. Uh, and, I, I mean, across the gamut, Casablanca or Casablanca, depending on where you grew up. Casablanca, love it. Wuthering Heights, going back a little old school, dealing with some female Victorian fiction. I love that story. I took a Victorian fiction class in college as sort of a summer, let's get some credits out of the way. Uh, so female Victorian fiction class, me and 27 women. That was fun. And I think all 27 hated men, and so that was a fun summer. So uh, just kind of what it is. Hi, I'm here. Yes, so it was a good time. Uh, other stories, uh, Ghost, come on, Patrick Swayze, Demi Moore, that whole clay scene, right? You know what I'm talking about, like that. Even The Notebook, kind of dig The Notebook a little bit. Won't admit that to anybody but you and the people that download our messages. Um, how, about, how, about, uh, how about Up? Remember that movie Up, the cartoon movie and that couple? One of the sweetest things ever, right? Love that love story. Uh, Wally and Eve. Remember Wall, E and Eve? Remember that? Eve. We love that. Love those stories. William and Kate, love those too, right? William and Kate, man, having babies like it's going out of style, those two. It's unreal. So yeah, love a good love story. We all love good love stories. I know we all don't confess that we love good love stories, but I think it's good to love a love story and um, important for us to do so. In fact, if you don't love a good love story, you're going to hate today's message because today's message is all centered around a love story, a love story where the two players, one of them is a destitute widow and the other, other one is a nobleman, a, a man of valor, a land baron, and it takes place in the book of Ruth. If you haven't yet found the book, you can find it now. But before we start looking at it and reading through some things that are found in it, a couple of things just to get out of the way from the beginning. The first is the book of Ruth serves as a bridge. It serves as a glimpse of hope, really, between the book of Judges and 1 Samuel. We've come out of the book of Judges last week with Samson. Remember how the book of Judges ended? Sort of wraps up that whole era, epoch, this way when it writes in the very last verse, in those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. That was that period. The lowest of the low, the baddest of the bad, heading toward 1 Samuel. And, and things, again, are not looking good. They're not very hopeful, kind of discouraging. But here's the thing. The Holy Spirit drops this beautiful, romantic story right in our laps before we get there. This four-chapter book right there in between these two mammoth pieces. Again, one judges, depressing, hard, sinful, rejection, all of that. Going to 1 Samuel, the people of God saying, hey, give us a king, asking for that because they wanted to be like those in the nations around them. But then you get this little tidbit, this sweet little romantic story called Ruth. And we need to get that it serves as a bridge between the two. Secondly, its inclusion in the Bible makes no sense. Makes no sense. It's a love story. Makes no sense. If. If the way you read it is simply as a mere event in history, if that's all you read it with that kind of mindset, it makes no sense. However, if you read it with Jesus in mind, then it becomes one of the most important books in the entire Bible. If you read it as a picture of mankind's longing for redemption and inclusion, all coming by way of God's grace, then you've got more than a great story. You've got a divine masterpiece on your hands. So let's go to the book of Ruth. Let's read the first five verses. It's great. In the days when the judges ruled, so we're coming out of that time, but we're not quite out of that yet, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The, the name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Aphrodites from Bethlehem and Judah. 
they went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These two, or excuse me, these took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other, Ruth. They lived there about ten years. And both Malon and Kilion died. So that the woman, Naomi, was left without her two sons and her husband. Lots of stuff goes on in five verses. We've got three deaths and we've got a famine. Let's piece this together. What's going on? What's the issue? Well, the issue is we have a man named Elimelech married to a woman named Naomi. Now, we're going to look at Naomi's story in two weeks. So we're not going to really hit her today. So if you're frustrated that we don't hit this bitter woman, we'll come back to her. We'll, nail, we'll absolutely nail her story in a couple of weeks. So we have Naomi, Elimelech. There's a problem. There's a famine in the land of Judah. Specifically, in the city of Bethlehem, which is ironic because Bethlehem means place of bread, but there's no bread to be had. So this Jewish couple, along with their two sons, they travel east. If you're looking at a map, picture the Dead Sea in the middle. You've got the region of Judah and Bethlehem. They travel east to Moab. Big, big theme in the book of, or in the Bible itself, big theme, east is bad. You don't want to go east. East is always bad. East of Eden, bad. Going east, bad. Traveling down, bad. Always bad. Okay, just so you know. They go east to Moab. Why do they go? They want to find some food there. But while there, Elimelech dies. With Naomi left with her two sons, who thereafter marry Moabite women, but boom, her two sons die soon afterwards. Naomi, who traveled with Moab with three men, is now left with two women, three widows in total. Things have changed quickly over a 10-year period. Making matters worse, these two widowed daughters-in-law, as we just mentioned, were Moabites. What's so bad about that? Everything. Everything. Horrible. What's so bad about people from Judah marrying Moabite women? Well, think about inviting a bunch of jihadists to your bar mitzvah. Okay, think about that when you get home. You can kind of reason with that. Okay. It's that, man. It's that. Let me see if I can convince you of it. The Moabite beginnings date back to Lot. Remember Lot? Abraham had a nephew, Lot. He was a bit of a nut job. Lot was always problem. He wanted what was best for him. Didn't take into consideration Abraham and his call. He bedded down, made home around the area of Sodom and Gomorrah. Remember that story? God rains down judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah. Lot gets out with his family, not his wife so much. She turned around and looked. She became a pillar of salt. But he did get out with a couple of his family members, two daughters specifically. They freak out. They start thinking amongst themselves, we're in trouble. We're not going to be able to have a family. So they come up with this great idea, wonderful idea. Let's get daddy really drunk and sleep with him. Wow. Wow. Icky? Absolutely. But they do. He gets drunk back-to-back nights. They sleep with daddy. They both get pregnant. The first of the two that gets pregnant have a son, has a son. They name him, you guessed it, Moab. That's the beginning of the Moabites. Fast forward centuries. The Moabite clan starts to grow. How do they function in relationship with the people of God? Not well. One of their kings was a guy named Balak. Balak hated the Israelites. Hated them. Came, with the, came up with the idea of, I know, I'll get some cash together. I'll entice a prophet to rain down a curse on the people of Israel. Didn't go so well. Balaam is the prophet's name. He wanted to. He tried. Never worked. Never happened. And as you know, the end of the story, his donkey gave him a stern talking to. Remember that? That's the Moabites. That's Balak. They were horrific. They were enemies of the people of God. We see this going on and on and on. For many years, Moab oppressed Israel, especially during the reign of the Judges. Judges chapter 3 specifically talks about this 18-year period of oppression on the people of God by the Moabites. 
if you go ahead to Israel's first king, a guy named Saul, one of his first acts in his kingship was, was to go into the Moabites and take care of business. We read this in 1 Kings 14. When Saul had taken the kingship over Israel, he fought against all his enemies on every side, against Moab, there they are, and against the Ammonites, against Edom, against the kings of Soba, and against the Philistines. Wherever he turned, he routed them. And in fact, things went pretty well all the way through King David's reign. No problem with the Moabites, but soon thereafter, the Moabites returned and brought great trouble in spades. Absolutely just doubled down on their terror and their oppression and their enmity toward Israel. In addition to this, if that wasn't bad enough, they also worshipped a god called Chemosh. Really important in the worship of Chemosh was child sacrifice. Very, very prominent. Literally, you would bring your infant children as an act of worship and sacrifice, lay them on an altar before Chemosh, and burn them. This was part of their worship. Idolatry, false gods, worship, put this all together. Bad beginnings, the rejection of the true God, attempted curses, idolatry, idolatry, child sacrifice, opposition, and enmity towards Israel. It's a bad stew of everything. And because of it, and understandably so, God pronounced a curse on Moab. We read about the curse of God in a couple of places, none more specific than Deuteronomy chapter 23, where we read, no Moabite or any of their descendants may enter the assembly of the Lord, not even in the 10th generation. For they did not come out to meet, with you, meet you with bread and water on your way when you came out of Egypt, and they hired Balaam, remember that false prophet? To pronounce a curse on you, do not seek a treaty of friendship with them as long as you live. We actually get something more here in Deuteronomy that I haven't touched upon, and that is, it wasn't just Moab's idolatry and sin and rejection of God. It was also the fact that they never helped the people of Israel later that led to this particular curse. So again, put this all together. Because of all of this, they were never allowed to enter the assembly of Israel. That is... None of them would ever come inside covenant relationship with God. Now, why am I spending the time giving this historical background on this? What is the point as it pertains to the book of Ruth? Well, I would argue with you, West Side, that in God's grand story, the Moabites serve as the most dramatic picture of those cursed by God and cut off from him. It's so bad on the Moabites that the book of Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 15 and 16, takes two full chapters, chapters 15 and 16, talking about the Moabites and God's opposition to them. It's that bad. And I would again argue with you that that's the role they play in this story as we enter the story of Ruth. So let's go back to her. We have Ruth. Ruth was a Moabite. This is a problem. And it's also the time of the judges. Was that a good time? No. Even the judges were doing what was right in their own eyes. Which helps us understand as you look back at chapter 1, and if we were to take the time to read the rest of the chapter, why Naomi says to her widowed daughters-in-law, stay in Moab. Stay here. Return to your family. Don't come with me. See, Naomi understood that them returning with her to Judah would be bad enough, but them now coming as widowed Moabites would include them with the bottom feeders, the lowest of the low. One of the daughters-in-law takes Naomi up. She stays. But Ruth does not. Look at verses 16 to 18, same chapter, chapter 1. We read there, Ruth replying, Do not urge me to leave you. Or to return from following you? For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God my God. Where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. This may be admirable 
may look at this and go, man, Ruth, man, awesome. But it makes no sense. I mean, even if you include like, things like, well, she, she must have really loved her mother-in-law. It still doesn't make sense. She understood the time. She understood the law. She understood Judah. She understood Moab. So why did she do it? Was it simply because she was just a really nice daughter-in-law, just wanted to take care of her mom? I would suggest that it's something much more significant than that. And I think we get a glimpse of what that is when you look one more time at verse 16 at the end of it, where she says, your people shall be my people. And then she adds, and your God, my God. See, I think why she chose to go and follow Naomi was based on her belief in the goodness of Israel's God. And so, in an act of faith, she journeyed to Judah where she trusted that she wouldn't be received by the letter of the law, but by the spirit of grace. Which leads us to chapter 2 where her faith is rewarded. Let's look at the first three verses. Now Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him in whose sight I shall find favor. And she said to her, go my daughter. So she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers and she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was the clan of the Elimelech, of Elimelech. So who do we have here? Well, we're introduced to another person, a relative of Elimelech, Naomi's husband who has since passed. This guy's name is Boaz, a name which means in him is strength. He is described in verse 1, as you look at it, as a worthy man. What does that mean? Well, it's a, it's a, it's a word that could be used to describe his wealth and there's probably no doubt that he had some bucks. We're going to see that later. But it's a more important word speaking of things like valor, of, of being a man of, nobil, of nobility. He was a man of valor. He was a noble man, a man who had some wealth. That's who this individual is. So one day, Ruth says to Naomi, we see this in verse 2, let me go to a field and glean there. Perhaps whoever owns the field will look on me with favor. What does it mean to glean? What's gleaning mean? Well, quite frankly, it's the welfare system of this particular time. Uh, it was mandated by law, we'll look at a text in just a second, that when you went out and harvested your field, that if you left anything behind while you harvested, anything hit the ground, that you weren't allowed to double back and pick it up. In fact, you weren't even allowed to go to the outside, very outside edges of your field. You would actually leave some, some harvest plants, whatever there, so people could come along and harvest it so that the poor and the sojourner and the alien could have something to eat. We read about it this way in Leviticus 19, where we read, when you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to its edge. Neither shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest, and you shall not strip your vineyard bare, neither shall you gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner. I am the Lord your God. If you know anything about the story of Jesus in, this gospel, in the gospel messages, there was an episode where Jesus and his disciples were traveling along and they gleaned from a field. Uh, it was the same episode where the religious leaders of the day rebuked them for working on a Sabbath. So this is what gleaning is. So with this law in mind, Ruth heads out with the hope that whatever field she picks, the owner of it would look on her with favor. Just note that word, vital word in this text. The word favor, really important in the whole book of Ruth, vital in chapter 2. It's a word that comes up several times. We see it in verse 2. We'll see it in verse 10. We'll see it in verse 13. And it's connected to kindness, which we see in verse 20 as well. Really important word. Like I said, it's a key one. It's a key one because it's a word that also means grace and can be translated as such. So put this all together, Westside, and what we get so far. We've got Ruth, this Moabite woman, heading out, and in an act of great providence, she just so happens. You see that in verse 3? 
to pick a field owned by, of all people, the nobleman Boaz. Quite literally, Boaz was the Lord of the harvest. Don't miss that. And Ruth happened upon him. This is, this is so good. Violins, you know what I mean? Starting now, like you're kind of like getting into it, right? This is so good. So let's keep on going. Here's the thing about Boaz. Kind of frustrating from the standpoint of there's no apparent problem with him. You know, I mean, he's perfect. That's what I'm trying to tell you. I mean, everybody else in the Bible, like, save Jesus, is a bit not jobby, right? Has some skeletons in the closet, so to speak. Boaz, not a one. Boaz, I'm not saying he's sinless, but I am saying that if Ruth plays the role of hopelessness and alienation and one under the law, then Boaz plays the role of redeemer and freedom giver. In fact, Boaz embodies what the grace and favor of God looks like. I want to prove that to you by picking things up in verse 4 and reading through verse 9. And behold, anytime you see that word in the Bible, stop, underline it, mark it. The author's trying to get something past, uh, making sure we get, get this point and doesn't go past us. And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem. That's interesting, Bethlehem. Man, somebody else comes from Bethlehem. And he said to the reapers, the Lord be with you. And they answered, the Lord bless you. Then Boaz said to his young man who was in charge of the reapers, whose young woman is this? I don't know if he said it like that. I have a, have a feeling. I just have a feeling that he said, she's pretty. And the servant who is in charge of the reapers answered, she is the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. She said, please let me glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. So she came and she has continued from early morning until now except for a short rest. Then Boaz said to Ruth, now listen, my daughter, do not go to glean another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young women. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping and go after them. Have I not charged the young man not to touch you? And when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young man have drawn. Just stop there. So what do we get? Well, in this part of this great love story, Boaz, as I suggested before reading those few verses, embodies three of the many-sided jewel that is the grace of God. Let me say that again. I didn't say that well. In this part of the love story, Boaz embodies three sides of the many-sided jewel that is the grace of God. Let me show you what I mean, and we're going to see more as we continue on. The first, grace initiates. We see that in the first part of verse 8. Again, we need to understand and appreciate the culture and what's going on here. See, under the law, Ruth could not approach Boaz. She had no legal right to. Therefore, Boaz had to initiate the relationship, and he does. He approached, he spoke. That's the same for us in our Lord of the Harvest. So too for us. See, there is nothing in us that allows, nothing in us that enables us to approach our Lord of the Harvest, and therefore, any relationship with the Lord demands that he initiate it. It is by grace we are saved, as Paul writes in Ephesians 2, Ruth's salvation, soon to come, is graciously and favorably initiated by Boaz. That's the first thing that we see him embody. The second is grace provides. Boaz embodies this aspect of grace too. The grace of Boaz secures Ruth's guaranteed use of her field, of his field. That's what grace does, at least in part. It provides all we have comes by way of God's grace with all hope for the future resting on future grace given to us as well. That future grace to be received. That is, by the way, just one aspect of this. That is why, by the way, we can go with such confidence to God in our prayers. For the fact of the matter, in spite of what you have heard over the years, God never says no to our prayers ever. Never. He never says no to our prayers. If what you mean by that is that he leaves us and sends us away empty-handed. He never does. Ever. 
He may say no to a specific request, but he doesn't say no and say, get out of here. He always gives us something. That's why we are to approach his throne with confidence. Why? Because it's a throne of grace. Check it out in Hebrews chapter 4. That's why the writer of Hebrews says, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. So when you're going in your time of prayer, go confidently. Because it's a throne of grace. And why do we want to do that? Why we do that with such confidence is because we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. Guaranteed. Guaranteed. So you may not get the answer you particularly wanted, but you will be strengthened by grace as you go back into it. This should spur on our prayer lives. God always answers yes to something. To something. We see the provision of God's grace here embodied, embodied in Boaz's life. A third characteristic of grace embodied by Boaz at this point is that grace protects. Grace protects. Boaz provides protection for Ruth by instructing her to stick close to the other female reapers of the harvest. They would have been employees of him. This act actually builds on my earlier point. See, the beauty of our Lord initiating a relationship with us by grace and nothing else but grace is what protects our relationship most. That's why nothing will or can separate us from the love of God, for nothing joined us with him but grace in the first place. Grace protects. So Ruth went to a field hoping that she would receive what the law provided. That's what her hope was. But receive grace instead. A grace that so far has initiated, has provided, and has protected. And what does she do in response? Well, look at verse 10. I love verse 10. Because what we see in verse 10 is the only proper response to receiving the grace that God gives us. Worship. Let me read verse 10 for you just so we get this. Then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground, and said to him, Why have I found favor? Why have I found grace in your eyes that you should take notice of me since I am a foreigner? See, Ruth knew the law. She knew who she was, and she understood what was being given to her in Boaz. And how does she respond? Humble worship. Mindful of who she was and where she had come from, leading her to ask that all-important question, why have I found grace in your eyes? I am a cursed Moabite. I don't deserve this. The example of Ruth in verse 10 really should be our example, this proper example in living out this heart disposition that we should have whenever we come before our Lord in worship. Whether it's private worship or whether it's corporate worship, what should propel us towards that worship should be the awesome realization that God, in spite of the law, receives us by grace. The grace embodied by Boaz continues in verse 11. Take a look at verses 11 to 14. But Boaz answered, all that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me and how you left your father and mother and your native land and came to a people that you did not know before, the Lord repay you for what you have done. And a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Then she said, I have found favor in your eyes. There it is again. My Lord, for you have comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant, though I am not one of your servants. And at mealtime, Boaz said to, her, said to her, come here and eat some bread and dip your, dip your morsel in the wine. So she sat beside the reapers and he passed to her roasted grain and she ate until she was satisfied and she had some left over. There is so much in these verses, but for the sake of time, let me highlight just two additional characteristics of grace that Boaz embodies. Here's the first. Grace exceeds. Grace is abundant. Do you know what grace does? Grace moves us from gleaner to guest at the table. That's what grace does. 
The law said, let her pick up the scraps the reapers leave behind, but grace said, pull up a chair. That's what we get here. And who feeds Ruth? Who hands her food? Boaz. This guy's a rock star. Love this guy. Hey, love this guy. I mean, an absolute dreamboat, Boaz. And do you know why and why he's depicted like this? Because he's a picture of Jesus. That's why. He's a picture of Jesus and reminds us of some of the things that Jesus said and did when he finally arrived. Revelation 3.20, he declares, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. Reminds us of what Jesus says in John 14 when he says, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my Father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. It reminds us of his ministry in Mark 2.15 where we read, And as Jesus reclined at table in Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with him and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. Here's what you need, again, talking big story about the story of God, sort of 30,000 view of the story, that grand story of God. Few things depict God's gracious acceptance of us more than his many displays of hospitality and feasting. It's all over the place. The whole Jewish calendar centered around seven what? Feasts. That's awesome. Like long ones. Like long feasts. Seven dayers. Shut down, baby. We're eating. Fantastic. Seven. Seven of them. Feasting. What, where do we come together? What is our common ground here every week? What's it centered around? A meal. The communion meal. We see feasting all over the Bible. What's the first thing we're going to do when we get to heaven? Feast. Big bad boy wedding. Good meat and wine. As I've said, meat. No vegans in heaven. Right? I've said that. I'm just telling you the truth, man. Welches, mm -mm. good wine, good meat, feast. It's going to be fantastic. Feasts all over the Bible, hospitality all over the Bible. Where does Jesus do his first miracle? At a wedding feast. We see another example of it here. Come join me at my table. Stop gleaning. Get over here. Our problem is that in spite of all that the Lord offers, we choose to dine elsewhere. We drink from other cisterns. Here's a whole garden. Here's a whole garden. Everything you can have is here for you. Just one little tree over here, man. Don't eat from that. We respond, no, I want that one. Big garden, no, I want that. That's us. The exceeding grace Boaz embodies is further shown in verses 15 to 17. Take a look at these wonderful verses. When she rose to glean, Boaz instructed his young men, saying, Let her glean even among the sheaves and do not reproach her. And also pull out some of the bundles for her and leave it for her to glean. That's so great. Sort of like walk along and just kind of accidentally drop some bundles. Oh, can't go back. Gleaning law. Boaz, man. Boaz. Girls are rewriting their list right now. Right? That big list. Boaz. Point 59. <laughs> I'm going to get in trouble. Right. Where was I? Do not reproach her. Verse 16. And also pull out some. You know, I've already read that. Verse 17. So she gleaned in the field until evening. Then she beat out what she had gleaned, and it was about an ephah of barley. What's an ephah? About 35 to 50 pounds. Not really sure. 35 to 50 pounds. A, norm, a normal daily take at the time was about two pounds. I love this. Doesn't it remind you again going ahead to that wedding feast in Cana? Hey, Jesus, we ran out of wine. 180 gallons, do you? 
It's about 908 bottles. I think so. I think so, Jesus. There's new wine that's come. It's exceeding wine. It's this we see here. Fast forward to the New Testament. How does Paul describe the grace that he has received that is ours too? He says it this way. Even though I was once a blasphemer, persecutor, and a violent man, I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorance and unbelief. The grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly. That's the grace of God. Along with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Peter says something similar when he writes, grace and peace be yours in abundance through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Westside, please hear me on this. We don't glean grace. We have it lavished on us by God in abundance. It's as, it's, it's as, it's as if we go, there goes my mouth again, man. I'm having trouble these last couple of weeks. It's as if God goes, I'm going to give you more than enough, and we respond, man, I am full. Can I take some with me? It's like that. Leftovers, as we see in this story. Leftovers. I want to take some with me. Paul writes about this in Ephesians 1 when he says about our time when we see God face to face and are with him in glory, that the thing that, the thing that God will lavish on us over and over and over again for eternity with us never being topped up, but being able to receive it and receive it and receive it, you know what it is? Kindness. Forever. That one of the reasons why we are saved is so God can just lavish kindness on us forever and ever and ever and ever. overflowing grace, kindness, mercy. Take a look at verse 15. I know my time is running out, but I want you to come back to verse 15 for it evidences another aspect of grace that could be missed in this. Do you see Boaz's command to his workers? See that at the end of the verse? Don't reproach her. It's a word that literally means to shame. Some of your Bibles have it translated as insult or reprimander, but it, it literally means don't shame her. Shame her for what? For her past? For who she was? Don't shame her for that. Why not? (sighs) Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter anymore. For she has now been received by grace from the Lord of the harvest. Don't shame her. Westside, this is God's instruction for us, for we often reproach ourselves. Or we believe the reproach of others, even though God has invited us to the table. But we still, so often, in this, we see ourselves as aliens and hopeless and rejected, where if we're lucky, perhaps we'll glean a few scraps here and there, But here's what grace also does and what Boaz embodies. Grace forgets. Just notice this. Isaiah 43 records, I, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake. That's what God does. And I will not remember your sins. Don't reproach. See, again, please hear me on this. Once you pull a chair up to God's table, he doesn't and he will will never reproach you. It's done. Here's the last thing that grace does, and we see it in verses 18 to 23. That is, grace redeems. Let's finish by looking at these last few verses. And she took it up, went into the city. Her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned. She also brought out and gave her what food she had left over after being satisfied. And her mother-in-law said to her, where did you glean today? I think that's how she said that too. That's a lot of barley. And where have you worked? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. She told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked and said, the man's name with whom I work today was a dreamboat. His name is Boaz. (laughs) And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, may he be blessed by the Lord whose kindness, there you see that word, has not forsaken the living or the dead. Naomi also said to her, the man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. And Ruth, the Moabite, don't miss that description here. That's there for a reason. We're being reminded of what's taking place. 
Besides, he said to me, you shall keep close by my young men until they had finished all my harvest. And Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, it is good, my daughter, that you go out with his, his young women, lest in any other field or another field you be assaulted. So she kept close to the young women of Boaz, gleaming until the end of the barley and wheat harvest, about seven weeks. And she lived with her mother-in-law. Let me wrap up, try to get a couple of points out very quickly to you. So what do we have? Well, Ruth takes her harvest back to Naomi, who asks, where'd you, where'd you get this? Right? What did you end up gleaning? She says, I found it and gleaned from some place that's owned by a dreamboat, like I said, named Boaz. Naomi, Naomi responds, he's family. Is this important? Heck yeah, it's important. Really important. For there was a law in Israel at the time, a principle really called kinsman redeemer. Kin, family redeemer. Several important aspects connected to kinsman redeemer. First of all, if someone was widowed, it was the responsibility of the closest unmarried relative to take her as his bride so that she would not be destitute. Naomi thinks this is a great possibility when she hears about Boaz. In the Old Testament, a kinsman redeemer could redeem or buy back a relative that was sold into slavery or could preserve the family lineage of a deceased male by marrying the widow and preserving the line or could also buy back land a relative had sold outside of the family. In order for someone to be a kinsman redeemer, Several things needed to be a part of them. They must be a blood relative, number one. Number two, they must be able to redeem. And number three, they must be willing to redeem. In the story of Ruth, and we won't look at the first six verses of chapter four, but there is a kinsman redeemer nearer to Ruth than Boaz. But he is not able or willing to redeem her, so Boaz steps up and becomes the kinsman redeemer and redeems the land and the lineage of Elimelech, Ruth's deceased husband, goes down generations. Boaz, being a blood relative, is able and willing to redeem, and by doing so, serves as a picture of the beautiful, redemptive work of God's grace through Jesus. In what way? Well, the Redeemer needs to be a relative. Jesus was. We read this. So now Jesus and the ones he makes holy have the same father. Jesus, the natural son, we adopted sons and daughters. We are co-heirs with Christ. That is why Jesus is not ashamed to call them his brothers and sisters. The redeemer must be able to redeem us, must have the resources to redeem us. Jesus did. What did he pay for us with? For you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed there's our word, from the empty way of life handed down to you from your forefathers. But here's what he paid. With the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect, he also needed to be willing. Jesus was. We read this in John 10, 13. No one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have the authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. And what is the result of Jesus' redemptive work for us, this willing brother, able brother? This is it, Ephesians 2, 19. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens. You're no longer a Moabite. Destitute. But you are a fellow citizen with the saints, members of the household of God. Do you remember when you were a kid and you had a fundraiser, maybe for a baseball team you're on or whatever, you wanted to go on some field trip, and you had the fundraiser where you had to collect bottles? Remember that? You'd go door-to-door knocking, you got any bottles, and if somebody brought out the big two-liter bad boy, you were fired up, man, because that was like a quarter. And, but you would go out, and you would have people dump in, you know, whatever, whatever bottles, cans they had left over, and you would run up to 7-Eleven or IGA or Safeway, and what would you do? You would, you would turn the bottles in for cash. And that person would come out, right, and start sorting them. This is okay, this is okay, this is okay. And then every once in a while, they would bring up a bottle or a can, and they go, sorry, not redeemable. And you're like, What? What are you talking about, man? We not read. No, we don't take these back. Not redeemable for cash. Not redeemable. I don't want to be trite or simplistic, but none of us, none of us are labeled non-redeemable. 
We have a Redeemer who wants to come in, can come in, has come in, our brother Jesus, our co-heir Jesus, who has bought us with a price, saving us, transferring us, now part of the household of God if we would just receive it. That's what we see in this story. It's tasty and it's wonderful. I wrap up with one final thought on the gracious redemption that Boaz embodied and that which is ours through Jesus. It restores life and it gives new life too. Look at verses 13 to 17. So Boaz took Ruth, she became his wife, and he went into her and the Lord gave her conception, she bore a son. Then the women said to Naomi, blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer. And may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life. There it is. And a nourisher of your old age for your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name saying, a son has been born in Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. So Ruth has a child, and we see that this child is placed on Naomi's lap. But do you know who Naomi was holding? Not just her grandson. She was holding her redemption. We read this. Last verse. Solomon, there he is, we've come back to him, was the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Obed, the father of Jesse. Jesse, the father of King David. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who was called the Christ. West Side, when we receive the gracious gift offered to us by our Lord of the harvest, we don't simply enter a relationship. We enter a love story with one who initiates and provides and protects and forgets and exceeds and finally redeems. Let me pray. Oh God, I love your word. Love your word. I thank you for your word and I thank you for the story of Ruth. Not because just by itself it's a great story, but because it points to the greatest of stories. The story of redemption where we can go from alien to brother and sister brought into the family of God because of what you, Jesus, our Redeemer, what you did for us, paying that price for us, willingly paying that price for us. Thank you, Jesus, for your redeeming work. And as we go into this time of response, Jesus, I pray that our disposition and our heart would be like what we see in Ruth, just awe-inspired, humble worship, realizing that you could have dealt with us by the law, but you dealt with us by grace. Thank you. Thank you. I pray that this would be pleasing time to you and would be so, so tasty to us as you pour your spirit out on us during it. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.